You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 2nd of January 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up, any hopes of festive peace in Ukraine were ruined by Russian missile and drone attacks. We'll find out how the West's attempts to stop their supply from Iran are progressing. Then to China, where some experts estimate almost 10,000 people per day could now be dying from COVID, as more nations bring back testing for travellers from the country. And we'll find out how Turkey and Syria are trying to repair relations as elections loom in six months for President Erdogan. Plus the passing of a pope, the day's papers, economic news and a look ahead at the top films of 2023. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Lula da Silva has been sworn in as the new president of Brazil for the third time. The Syrian army says Israel has carried out a missile strike on Damascus International Airport. And Ukraine officials say an overnight Russian drone attack has damaged critical infrastructure in and around Kyiv. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. But first, let's stick with Ukraine. Instead of fireworks filling the skies over Ukraine on New Year's Eve, it was yet more Russian missiles and drones. Several blasts across the capital Kyiv damaged buildings, killing at least one person and injuring dozens. In a New Year message, President Putin pledged victory in his special military operation. But responding in Russian, President Zelensky appealed directly to the Russian people to see through the Kremlin's lies and save their nation's future. So does 2023 hold any hope for the prospect of peace? Well, I'm joined now by Russian analyst uh, Stephen Diel. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what's the current state of this conflict after Ukraine had made significant gains again in territory in recent months? I think we can talk about two major elements of the conflict of the war. Um, One is on the ground uh, in the east of Ukraine, uh, and there both sides have said there's pretty well a stalemate, although there appears to have been a significant battle um, in the last um, 24, 48 hours uh, in which Ukraine is claiming, excuse me, sorry, in which Ukraine is claiming 400 Russian casualties. And although the Russians haven't put a figure on it, the Russians have admitted to having suffered casualties in this fighting on the ground. So that's that's, um, happening all the while. That's that's never gone away. but of course, the other side of it is are these missile and drone attacks on um, Ukrainian civilians, on Ukrainian cities. Um, and any hopes that we might have had, of, well, maybe a new year, maybe um, a hint of peace were blown away um, in the early hours. I mean, just after midnight um, in Kiev on, um, uh, on already just into the 1st of January. When there were drone attacks, there were missile attacks, a very significant number, um, probably 20 to 30 Uh, missiles and drones fired at the capital and other cities. And indeed, again, as you reported in the news bulletin um, last night, so into the 2nd of January, uh, a repeat of this. So you've got this 
constant bombardment by the Russians of Ukraine's civilian infrastructure, trying to knock out power, trying to knock out energy, trying to make people freeze, um, while at the same time, if anyone is making gains on the battlefield in the east of Ukraine, it does still appear to be Ukraine. And on those drones, there's been international efforts to try to block their supply from Iran. How is that going? Not very well would be the the report, I think. Um, Of course, the trouble is that Iran is also a country that uh, is under Western sanctions that doesn't listen to the West. Um, uh, I can think we can even say that there's a new axis of evil has been formed between Iran and, and Moscow. Moscow in recent weeks has been talking about providing military support to Iran. Um, while Iran <clears throat> eventually admitted uh, that they had supplied, before the war started, they said they supplied a few of their um, military drones, their, their attack drones, sometimes known as kamikaze drones, um, to the Russians. But in fact, we know they've been supplying them all along. Um, so um, the West is obviously is complaining. I'm sure in the, behind the scenes in diplomatic circles, there are efforts being made to try and stop the Iranians um, giving the Russians these uh, these drones. But the evidence of the last 48 hours shows that they're still getting there. And it's been a different Christmas in Russia. I saw footage of uh, sort of decorations in Moscow, which had the sort of Z symbol uh, as part of the uh, Christmas pageantry. Uh, but obviously, sanctions are biting the things that they can purchase as gifts very different this year. What's the mood like in, in Russia from people that you know? From people that I know, I would say tense. Um, Many people try to put out of their minds what's going on in Ukraine. For them, it's a long way away. If you live in Moscow, for example, or if you live in Siberia and you don't know people who are fighting there, it's an awfully long way away. Um, New Year, the New Year holiday for Russians has always been rather akin to what we in the West think of as the Christmas celebration in in so much as that's that's the big celebration. Um, And um, Russians I spoke to at New Year, they had their New Year tree, their Christmas tree, if you like. Um, they were making their traditional salads that they always have for their New Year celebration. They were still going ahead with all that. Um, but when you speak to them and ask them a few questions, they they will admit that, you know, in the background, there is this rather nasty special military operation, as Mr. Putin wants to call it, although indeed, he indeed even called it a war last week. Um, so... It's they're trying to get on with what they think of as normal life, but with difficulty. And indeed, that is going to get more difficult as 2023 goes on. What we saw as 2022 went on was after a lot of bravado early on saying, Western sanctions don't hurt us. Um, they are beginning to bite more and more. Um, so, for example, you know, Russian cars are, are made without uh, some of the more comfortable parts that they would have got from the West. Um, the, the the choice of goods in the shops, for the particularly for the young who are more used to a, a Western lifestyle, having the latest iPhone and so on, they're not getting these things now. So it, it's creeping. And I think as, as this year progresses, they will find more and more that they are feeling isolated. And President Putin's normal New Year's message sees him sort of standing alone uh, at the Kremlin, giving uh, his sort of review of the year and talking about the year ahead. This time, though, he was surrounded by soldiers uh, and he sort of said that there will be a victory. He again peddled the lies about neo-Nazis in Ukraine, said it was the West wanting to destroy Russia. President Zelensky actually put out his own message in Russian, specifically for the Russian people, saying that uh, Putin was hiding behind them 
that he was sacrificing them to stay in power for life, uh, that they were, if they didn't take action, they were going to destroy the future of their country. Is that gaining any traction at all in Russia? I don't think it is. In fact, when I saw Putin's address, I thought, this is a man who's worried. This is, this is a man who has turned away from, and it's, it, as you say, the traditional uh, New Year greeting, the president, and it's not just um, Putin, when Medvedev stood in, uh, in Yeltsin's time in the 1990s, it was the president in front of a snowy Kremlin and spreading a, a goodwill message, you know, it's a new year, and you, let's look ahead, let's be positive. And suddenly we've got Putin with all these soldiers behind him. Um, it, it almost seemed as if he was trying to say, look, look, really, it, you know, it's really going well. Um, when he had to have these soldiers behind him to try and try and give the impression that it was going well when it's not, uh, particularly on the battlefield. Um, and it, it struck me as more a message of desperation. And there wasn't a lot of, um, well, you know, it's a new year. Let's 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 look ahead with be positive. Um, it was very much a, a military message uh, from a man who's who knows that this adventure that he undertook in Ukraine, which he thought would last three days, has gone on for almost a year now uh, and is looking pretty grim for Russia. And looking ahead at 2023 for both leaders, we know that President Zelensky has still got massive support around the world. He made, of course, that trip to Washington and uh, got standing ovations in Congress, got more funding for weapons. President Putin increasingly isolated what does the next 12 months hold potentially for both leaders, both kind of internationally and for Putin as well internally? Are there any sort of rumblings of disquiet of a palace coup, perhaps? We've yet to see anything that we could really say is, is rumblings of a palace coup. Um, there's been there's been talk of it. Indeed, I've been talking about it since, since the start of the war. Um, but... The, the longer it goes on and the, the, the longer that there are losses on the battlefield, um, Putin doesn't care about how many men he loses. I mean, he, he's, you know, he's, he's already thrown unprepared, um, red, quickly conscripted soldiers into the battlefield, many of whom have already been killed. Um, so he, he becomes ever more desperate because this is his adventure. He knows he's got to he's got to try and get something he can call victory out of this for Ukraine, uh, for, for, for Russia from Ukraine. Um, the four eastern districts, which he declared in September were part of Russia, which are quite, quite clearly not part of Russia uh, and the international community would never accept were part of Russia. Um, so that's looking pretty desperate. The crucial thing on the on Zelensky's side is that Western support continues. Now, in the US, you've got, of course, you're going to have a divided um, uh, it's a situation where um, the, uh, the, the Democrats control the Senate, uh, the Republicans are controlling the House just. Um, I, I, I think that even though a number of Republicans, despite you, um, Zelensky's very wise, very bold move to go and visit Washington, um, some representatives, some um, uh, uh, Republicans have still said, you know, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't be giving all this money. I, I think that's a minority. And I think that that will still continue to come. Um, the, very interestingly, Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, gave a big interview for the BBC yesterday in which he stressed the need for the West and NATO to keep supporting Ukraine, keep giving them um, military equipment. So I think that will continue. And if I had to be pushed into a corner and say, what do I think is going to happen in 2023? And this may be just wishful thinking. But uh, I think that it is going to get more and more difficult for Mr. Putin. 
um, and and possibly this idea of a palace coup might come about because he's got these people around him who uh, are, are worried by what's happening. They know that their necks are on the on the on the block if 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 it all blows up. Um, and there is there seems to be a real feeling of hope that Ukraine actually is going to end 2023 victorious and that the Russians will be driven out. Well, let's cross our fingers. Stephen Yell, thank you very much. Well, it's 15.12 in Beijing and 7.12 here in London. The close of 2022 saw China abandon its zero-COVID policy, but the sudden shift has triggered an infection wave which has seemed to take authorities by surprise. Whilst official numbers are, of course, suppressed and unclear, Western experts believe as many as 10,000 per day might be dying. And we're also seeing countries once again impose testing regimes on travellers from the nation, just as they've been told that they can once again move around the globe. Well, Steve Zhang is the director of the China Institute at SOAS, the University of London. Steve, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what's the mood like in China now that the country is unlocking? Well, people in China are very unhappy and some of them are rather a bit frightened and others are angry. The unlocking has not been handled in the way that people wished that it had been handled. And therefore, while they welcome the returns of freedom, they are very resentful of the fact that a lot of their relatives are getting sick and a lot of themselves are getting sick and some of them are dying. And are there any signs of worry or panic over the spike in COVID cases and deaths? I don't think there's so much um, panic that we see at the moment than just this sheer disappointment and anger at the government for having squandered three years of the pandemic in not preparing for China to get out of it in a way that the government promised that it will which is to make people safe and protect life. And that resentment is very dangerous in a country like China, where in some ways the system can be quite fragile. We saw unprecedented protests at the end of last year. Has there been any further public display uh, of anger over the handling of this policy shift? Well, not a lot, and certainly not physical demonstrations. The government has been very quick and effective in suppressing demonstrations and in preempting further demonstrations. They, for example, um, use the police force to check people's mobile phones when people were still demonstrating last month, giving people the impression that once they were being checked, the police may be able to track them through their mobile devices and then pe- the government could uh, follow up with them later. So a lot of those 
uh, protests basically did not return, but the anger remains, and we still see some of them being articulated in creative ways on social media. And you mentioned the anger there that uh, sort of China, you know, spent three years under this zero COVID policy, that they potentially had an advantage when it came to unlocking in the way that the sort of state can control a lot. But, you know, they've looked on as many nations have unlocked and they've done that with having a, a vaccine program that had been fully rolled out. Do you think it was sort of overconfidence or just naivety from President Xi Jinping that he's made this shift without the vaccine program? seemingly haven't really taken hold in China? I think it's because of the narrow-minded, chauvinistic way how Xi Jinping manages policy in China generally, including in the COVID policy. Xi Jinping was arguing, well, in fact, declaring very confidently um, until basically a month ago that China had the best way of dealing with COVID and the Chinese way demonstrated the superiority of the Chinese system. So if you claim that your system was superior to everybody else, you were not going to be learning from the uh, unsuccessful or failed approach that countries like the UK or the US or Italy had followed before. And therefore, they really didn't see a need for that. And changing the system from being a collective leadership to a strongman rule under Xi Jinping also meant that the technocrats, the professionals in health services, were not able to make the kind of input effectively to policy making, then basically have to do whatever the big boss said needs to be done. And the big boss didn't understand the issue, therefore never prepared the health services in China to deal with the situation of uh, lifting of the lockdown and dealing with the kind of challenges that might come up. Mm. And that big boss has been curiously absent as the chaos has unfolded. Where is he, do we think? And can he survive this if it continues to go so disastrously wrong? The big boss is here to stay. I think the idea that... uh, by some of the medical uh, scientists calculating that the death in China could potentially be about a million from COVID in the coming year or so, is not going to change very much. We are talking about a Communist Party that had managed by its own policy called the Great Leap Forward in 1959 to 62, caused the death by starvation of over 40 million people and stay in power. So the idea that um, the the same party causing death by COVID by a million is going to bring that government down is just for the birds. Xi Jinping will use all the powers in his control to stay in power, whatever the price people in China and in the rest of the world will have to pay. Xi Jinping comes first in all policy calculations in China. 
And turning uh, to travel, we've got Chinese New Year just around the corner. Do you think we might see any internal restrictions imposed? Because that obviously is a busy time for people going to see uh, family and friends. And also internationally now, Chinese travellers are just told they could jet off again, but they're going to face testing regimes. How has that gone down? Well, the lifting of travel restrictions, I think, is genuinely welcomed Uh, by the overwhelming majority of people in China, both for domestic travel as well as international travel. Most of the travel for the Chinese New Year would be um, domestic. But there's also a tradition of people traveling overseas for holidays during the Chinese New Year break. So I think that is going to come back as well. There's also potentially an issue of, if you like, medical tourism, which is for people in China to travel outside of China, either for treatment or for access to more effective Western vaccines that they could not get in China. So I suspect that there will be a uh, significant resurgence of Chinese tourism, both domestic and external. And finally, turning to military matters, President Xi met with former Russian President Medvedev before Christmas, and he delivered a letter from Putin, which Xi had reportedly requested, outlining his plan for Ukraine. How are relations between the two leaders now? And if things continue to not go that well domestically on the COVID front, could we see uh, President Xi decide to ramp up action in Taiwan? Or is that sort of now, given what's happened in Ukraine, something that he might be a little wary of? I think the Taiwan question is unlikely to happen immediately. Um, Increase in tensions, increase in intimidation, yes. But a full-scale war for China to rage against Taiwan in 2023, I think is almost uh, extremely unlikely. Um, the, the simple reason is that China is simply not ready. It does not have the capacities to invade Taiwan with a reasonable degree of success at an acceptable level, of course. And Xi Jinping knows that if he tries to invade Taiwan and failed, it could potentially destabilize his own hold to power. So he won't do that. On the Russia question, Xi Jinping's position has very, very consistent from the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that policy is and remains one of um, declaring neutrality, supporting Putin, but paying no price for it. Mm. So we will see China continue to maintain strong relationship with with Russia. Steve Zhang, thank you very much. This is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's 8.23 in Rome, 7.23 here in London. Well, on New Year's Eve, Pope Benedict XVI passed away aged 95. 
His papacy will forever be remembered by his resignation from it, the first pope in 600 years to step down. This quiet, studious man shocked the world when in 2013 he said the role had become too much for him to bear. Well, Christopher White is the Vatican correspondent for National Catholic Reporter based in Rome. Christopher, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what is the reaction and mood being like in the Vatican? Hi, hi Vincent. Good to be with you. I think... You know, for seven years and uh, 10 months, uh, Pope Benedict XVI was Pope, and then he was retired for nearly 10 years. And so in many respects, when he retired, a lot of people, including himself, thought, you know, maybe he'd have one or two years left. And the fact that he's gone on for this long meant that this sort of inevitable death watch uh, sort of dragged on. And so when the moment happened, you know, there was initially great shock last Wednesday when Pope uh, Francis said that he was uh, that the retired pope was very sick uh, but the fact that he passed away at 95 on uh, uh, on Saturday uh, it was no real shock the Vatican of course has been planning for this moment for years truly since the day he stepped down and he was the oldest pope in three centuries at 78 when he was elected in 2005 much of his eight years were spent dealing with historic institutional sex abuse scandals how effective was he in dealing with it and how much of a toll did it take on him I think uh, he'll get an incomplete grade uh, on that uh, front. You know, as both the head of the Vatican's doctrinal office, which he ran from the 80s up until he was elected pope in 2005, um, you know, he was considered in many respects as the most credible person in Rome on that front, really going after priests with, um, uh, you know, checkered past and that were known predators. Uh, but he, in a sense, couldn't go far enough. He really had a, a difficult issue addressing the problem with bishops who abused and bishops who covered up for abuse. Uh, so in, in a sense, you know, the, the idea that priests could be found guilty, he, he, was, a, he was a trailblazer there. Uh, but I think looking back, people will see his legacy as mixed because they'll say, uh, in a sense, he was a bishop who didn't realize or, or, or couldn't see that bishops themselves needed to be held accountable. And he was a traditionalist, conservative, a very academic man who wrote books. Critics say that he struggled to adapt the church to the 21st century. Is that a fair critique, do you think? I think, you know, the fact that he was, you know, his career path, if you will, is one who, you know, after, you know, spending time in the university as a theologian and a, a scholar, became an archbishop, uh, a post he held for about four years, and then immediately came to Rome. This, this career trajectory meant that he was someone who didn't have a lot of direct pastoral experience in, in the real everyday lives of people and was much more comfortable in, in the world of ideas. And by, by contrast, you have Pope Francis, uh, who's, you know, one of his major messages is the, the need to encounter and the theme of mercy. And so with, with Francis, you know, I think part of the reason for his mass appeal is the fact that he connects with everyday people. And that's what he seems to be most interested in, whereas Benedict was much comfortable in the, in the world of ideas. In many respects, they sing from the same hymnal in terms of, you know, they're both upholders of traditional Catholic doctrine, but they have very different matters of pastoral priorities and what they choose to emphasize. And he was, of course, following Pope John Paul II, who traveled widely when healthy, uh, healthy and was a great mass communicator, at times even a bit of a showman. Was that always going to be a tough act to follow? Of course. I mean, you had a pope that for nearly 30 years 
you know, became the most sort of visibly viewed person in the world. More people saw John Paul II than anyone else in, in history. And that's, that's quite a, a difficult act to follow, especially for someone who was bookish and shy. And, you know, a, a year into the job talked about how, you know, he was still learning to be Pope. You know, the, the cameras had been a shock to him. Uh, this is someone who, you know, despite all of his academic acclaim, never sought the office of the papacy. You know, he had tried to retire, uh, tried to retire on about three occasions. Uh, John Paul II never let him do that. And then, of course, he was famously elected pope. So that retirement, that, you know, life of, you know, quiet life of continued learning and writing uh, was, was never something uh, that he was able to achieve. And that made the papacy, I think, a great burden to him, a burden to him at, dif at different times. And looking at the Catholic Church now, I mean, Pope Benedict's resignation shocks the world, in part because it wasn't widely known that popes could actually uh, resign. I didn't help but notice that yesterday Pope Francis uh, was in a wheelchair uh, when he was uh, going uh, about sort of starting the sort of process of the uh, memorial services for Pope Benedict. Do you think we might see Pope Francis himself resign in the coming years, or is he in the job for life? And is there a lesson perhaps in, in the sort of most recent two popes that perhaps they need to go somewhere else in the world to to engage perhaps they need to go slightly younger again well i think you know uh, pope francis has struggled with mobility issues for about a year now uh but he's been very clear uh to use his own words that it takes a brain to govern uh, not legs uh and you know he he has a full agenda He's talked, you know, he's verbalized his plans as far as into 2025. So I don't think an immediate resignation uh, from Pope Francis is, is anything uh, to expect. That being said, you know, he has lauded Benedict's, you know, humility and sacrifice are the words he's used to describe what Benedict did in stepping down from the papacy. Uh, so I think it's something that he, he thinks popes should consider. Uh, you know, when Benedict stepped down in 2013, the Catholic Church was making it up as they went along. This was a, a new situation in the modern era. There were no uh, written rules for what a retired pope should do. I think first and foremost, what many people will call for in this moment is for the church to come up with a set of norms for, you know, what retired popes should wear, where they should live, what sort of, you know, positions of authority <laughs> they'll that they will wield. Uh, these are all were once unknown questions, and now that we've had you know nearly ten years of a retired pope, uh, I think a lot of uh, church legal experts will say it's time to you know formalize that in a real way, so that future popes will have a clear idea of of their options. Mm -hmm. Christopher White, thank you very much. Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Luis Inácio Lula da Silva has been sworn in as the new president of Brazil, the third time he has held the country's highest office. In his inaugural address, Lula criticised the administration of his right-wing predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro, for his handling of the COVID pandemic while speaking of the need to rebuild Brazil. The Syrian army says Israel has carried out a missile strike on Damascus International Airport and put it out of service. It's the latest in a string of strikes targeting Iran-linked assets. The Syrian army says missiles also hit targets in the south of Damascus, killing two members of its armed forces. And officials in Ukraine say an overnight Russian drone attack targeting infrastructure has damaged energy facilities and caused power outages in and around Kyiv. Ukraine's military administration says the country's air defence systems destroyed 20 air objects above the capital. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned.
It's 10.31 here, uh, sorry, 10.31 in Istanbul, 7.31 here in London. Well, talks have been held in Moscow between Russia, Turkey and Syria's defence ministers to try to normalise relations between Ankara and Damascus after a decade of the Syrian war. I'm joined by Hannah Lucinda-Smith, Monocle's Istanbul correspondent. Hannah, thanks for joining us. How are relations currently between Turkey and Syria? Well, clearly, I mean, for the past decade since the outbreak of the of the Syrian war and Turkey's pretty rapid decision to throw its weight behind the opposition to President Assad, there have been almost no relations between these two neighbouring countries. Diplomatic ties were cut in 2011. Um, but what has carried on throughout that whole period uh, is intelligence ties and some low-level uh, kind of uh, diplomatic services. So here in Istanbul, um, there is still a Syrian consulate. It's still operating Syrian Turin Turkey can still go in there to try and ap- apply for new passports, paperwork, that kind of thing. Um, so that's never finished. And also we do know that there has been intelligence contact between the two sides uh, throughout this decade. Obviously, there are certain uh, issues on which you know, they're both concerned. ISIS, to a certain extent, also uh, the Kurdish militias operating in Syria. So those are contacts that have continued. But really since the summer, we've seen more and more signs that President Erdogan in particular is moving towards a position where he wants to normalise relations with Assad and try and kind of bring some normality back to uh, the diplomatic relations in his neighbourhood. It's really easy to forget now, but before the Syrian war broke out, Erdogan and Assad were really close. They went on holiday together in Bodrum. Uh, Erdogan often referred to Assad as his brother. They were uh, striking all kinds of deals on relaxing visas, increasing trade, these kind of things. So this is the kind of position that Erdogan wants to get back to. And there's a substantial uh, Turkish military presence in Syria. That's sort of mostly focused on, on the Kurds. How significant are these talks and what could we see happening? Well, of course, that is one of the big sticking points. From President Assad's point of view, Turkey's troops are in Syria illegally. He says that Turkey has launched a number of illegal ground invasions into Syria that uh, is currently occupying Syrian territory. Um, And at least publicly, he says it's non-negotiable that Turkish troops must must be removed from Syria. Now, from Turkey's point of view, uh, Turkey sees this kind of its military presence in northern Syria is something of a bulwark, uh, not only against uh, fresh fighting in areas where there are a huge amount of refugees uh, who, if there were to be fresh violence in Syria, would probably come towards the Turkish border, creating another refugee crisis in Turkey, but also because of the presence of these Kurdish militias, uh, particularly along Syria's border. They're militias that uh, are hostile to Turkey, that Turkey says are launching attacks on Turkish territory. Um, and from Erdogan's point of view, he's going to want some kind of reassurance from Assad that there's going to be a plan to make sure that they're not using um, that Syrian territory in order to threaten Turkey. Uh, and finally, just looking uh, to the year ahead, you of course have presidential elections in Turkey in June. What are Erdogan's chances looking like? And is this issue of Turkey blocking the Swedish and Finnish applications to join NATO going to rumble on as an issue during it? Yeah, so the elections in Turkey latest are going to be held in June. It's looking likely that they might be held a little bit earlier. And there are several pretty pressing issues that Erdogan's facing. One is the economy, which is doing very, very badly indeed, even by the kind of global standards that we're looking at. Uh, Another 
um, is the number of Syrian refugees in Turkey, somewhere close to 4 million Syrians. Um, when you look at the polls, public opinion polls done here, overwhelmingly Turkish people are really unhappy about this. They're facing their own economic hardships. They uh, don't see why Turkey is still, after 10 years, hosting this many Syrians. And they're starting to ask uh, when those Syrians are going to go home. Now, clearly... Uh, Erdogan's efforts to kind of you know, normalize relationships with Syria are part of that. Um, but also there are other things that he's fallen back on traditionally, particularly over the past five years, to try and rouse support. And one of them is by trying to show himself as a strong leader, a leader who's got the upper hand in places like the NATO alliance uh, in in Europe, um, you know, a leader who's standing up for Turkey, not just bowing to what the West wants. So I think the Sweden and Finland NATO issue falls very squarely in that. Erdogan says that those countries have been supporting terrorism, that they need to uh, kick out Kurdish militants from their politics, from their societies. Um, and I think it's probably something that's going to carry on until the election. It's something that he's going to really make use of to say, look, I'm the guy who's standing up for Turkey's interests on an international stage. Mm. Hannah Lucinda Smith, thank you. This is The Globalist. Well, it's 7.36 in London, 8.36 in Zurich. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me from Paris is journalist and author Agnes Parier. Agnes, thank you and happy new year. And it's going to be a tough one for Emmanuel Macron. Is that right? Oh, it is, yes. And a happy new year to you. Uh, Le Parisien has a sort of recap uh, of the next few weeks. And uh, indeed, it's going to be quite tough, I think, for Emmanuel Macron and his government. So there are a few hot dossiers, or we call we call them dossiers chauds um, in France, on the table of uh, the French president and a few bills that need to go through Parliament. But as you may remember, uh, Macron and his movement uh, don't have a majority in parliament. So the government will be seeking alliances with the right and the left, or, or really what's left of the left, that is to say not much. And um, and of course, with the far left and the extreme right uh, being very vocal and, and uh, trying everything they can to block the government and to make it fall, basically. So, um, I mean, there's a new bill on immigration, for instance, um, but really what we're looking at is the pensions reform, which COVID cancelled. Uh, I don't know if you remember, there were a lot of strikes in the autumn 2019, and it's a, it was about to pass in Parliament when COVID struck. So here we are again. Um, and, I mean, this reform really aims, among other things, to end privileges of many corporations, uh, which has enjoyed have enjoyed special advantages, some of them since Louis the. 14th. I'm just thinking about the uh, Paris um, ballet uh, um, and uh, yes, ballet dancers who can retire with a full pension and no obligation to uh, do other things. Um, yeah, they can retire at the age of 40. Um, of course, 
something about the train drivers, for instance, who can retire in their early 50s. And this dates back, of course, to the time of steam, steam trains when the work was physically very, very uh, arduous. So, but of course, there's a very French contradiction here because Emmanuel Macron was elected, actually, twice to carry out this much-needed reform, mm. and yet it is very likely to trigger strikes and massive demonstrations just to, to give you a sense the retirement age in Germany or in Britain is uh, 60. It is only 62 in France. So what Macron wants to achieve is just to raise it to 64 over 10 years. Uh, but even this this um, incremental increase is likely to provoke really mayhem in the streets. Uh, so, you know, we'll see. But it's, yeah. it's uh, going is it, to I mean, be a it bumpy interesting. road. Just in the UK, I mean, it's 66 for both men and women. It's projected to go up again. It sort of slides up here every five years or so without that much kind of debate. But in France, this is, you know, an issue show, but it's an issue long. Is it something that Macron's predecessors have really neglected? Because you've got the longest life expectancy in Europe in France, but also these lowest uh, retirement ages. Well, yes, and and you know the French uh, have it. Uh, you know, have a good life, although they think they have a miserable life. Uh, but <laughs> um, but uh, and they don't don't want it to change basically. Mm. And and uh, you know a lot of different corporations enjoy uh, different advantages. And what Macron wants to do is just to simplify a very complex system, which uh, for you know many people, especially single mothers, is actually not very fair. Um, and of course, you know, the whole of France is up in arms against it. Um, so we'll see. I mean, he's, he's uh, ready to play hardball. He, he said it. He said, you know, uh, I will dissolve, I won't shy away from dissolving mm. parliament and, and triggering new parliamentary elections. So this is going to be quite interesting. But on the other hand, this is what he was elected for. Yeah. And on the, before we turn to the next story, just on the immigration uh, law, of course, that is always a hot topic in any nation, but it is particularly something that far-right parties can capitalise on. Is this going to be something that we're going to see Marine Le Pen storm to the front of the headlines again with? Well, we'll see, because, I mean, it's uh, this new bill uh, is quite precise, it's quite specific. It wants, for instance, uh, for undocumented workers to be able to apply to residence permit if they uh, perform jobs that are in demand, for instance. They also want to reinforce the uh, double penalty uh, by lifting certain protections against deportation for foreigners who commit crimes. So we're not talking about, you know, uh, we're, we're talking about tweaking the system. Um, and uh, But we'll see what the far left and the far right are, are doing, because, mm. in, you know, in, I think the right uh, will be uh, voting for it uh, unless they want to obstruct for the the, the sake of obstructing uh, the government. government. Mm. And uh, turning now to Le Mans, there's been a change of decor reportedly in Berlin. Well, yes. I don't know if it was widely um, reported in, in the UK because in a way it's an old story. It happened on the, um, ironically on the 9th of November uh, of last year, that is to say exactly on the day 33 years after the war of the Berlin Wall. And what happened uh, is that a few high civil servants of the Frying Office voted to remove the name and the portrait of Otto von Bismarck. 
um, from one of the rooms uh, they were using, but quite a grand room, at uh, the flying office. And it was only known uh, a month later and uh, triggered uh, a huge uh, debate within Germany um, uh, about, you know, history. And Otto von Bismarck, of course, is a major figure of German history. It was uh, the, uh, the, you know, the Iron uh, Chancellor, as he was called uh, then, uh, of the Kaiser, of the Emperor. So he was operating within a not very democratic, if you'd like, context, um, which, um, you know, he seems to be reproached for not um, having done more, more, but could he have done more? And, um, and of course, he's a huge figure of German unity, mm. uh, which, of course, is ironic, you know, uh, 33 years after the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. So, I mean, and of course, as often, uh, the far left and the extreme right in Germany have hijacked uh, his the figure of Bismarck, either as a hate or a godlike figure. And in the end, says Le Monde and his correspondent in Berlin, history and um, its nuances come out poorer uh, from such a polari polarized debate, because obviously there should be a, a place mm. for Otto von ben Bismarck in Germany. Uh, and, and just lastly, uh, turning to L'Express, and there's uh, some writing here about the changing of the world or the flattening of the world. Well, yes, that's a, a curious uh, formula or expression. It comes from an essay by Olivier uh, Roy. Olivier Roy is a political scientist. He teaches at the European University of Florence and he's, he's written this uh, rather intriguing and, and very interesting uh, essay called The Flattening, uh, Flattening of the World. Um, and it's about the, the, the massive deculturation we are uh, living through, the, the notion of culture itself being in crisis and things that, you know, um, we, we tend to, uh, uh, to look at, uh, you know, that, that feeling that even um, majorities feel, you know, live as if they are endangered minorities, this, this sort of existential anxiety that is shared by almost everyone uh, and this defensiveness if you'd like. So he says a few I mean this is a very long interview, very very interesting but for instance um, he talks about uh, the many symptoms of that crisis, what he calls a humanism crisis uh, for instance globalish you know, and, and the success of the manga books for instance because both are very pale reflections of the culture they originally come from, the, of course, the English language and Japanese civilization. He says they used to have a high culture, but they are now only subcultures. And globalized culture is this uchronic kitsch and um, de-territorialized uh, culture. And, of course, this deculturation, as he calls it, goes hand in hand with individualism. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating reading, uh, not a very very uh, optimistic one uh, mm. but at least uh, lucidity <laughs> mm. well some deep thoughts at the start of another year Agnes Poirier thank you very much this is The Globalist UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage built on the unique dedication of our people we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work we know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. 
It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Well, it's time now to talk trade and economy with Vicky Price, economist and former joint head of the UK government's economic service. Vicky, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, and firstly, I mean, happy new year, but there are some severe warnings about a global recession in 2023. Indeed. Happy new year to you too. Um, we have had the head of the IMF warning that uh, things may in fact be worse in 2023 than they were in 2022, which uh, in a way sort of seems uh, a bit hard to uh, to believe. And yet, I mean, what's happening, of course, is that inflation is staying high, even though it's uh, plateauing in various parts of the world and in fact coming down a little bit in the US, for example. We've seen that a little bit in the EU. We've seen that also happening here in the UK. Um, but nevertheless, what's going on is that, uh, first of all, we've had wages falling behind so real wages are um, declining which means the household disposable incomes are suffering uh, which means therefore consumption is being affected you have quite a lot of countries trying to restrict their energy demand because of the cut of supplies from russia particularly gas supplies and that's what's going on in europe so you have quite a lot of supply chain issues still there even though the situation seemed to be improving relatively recently and then of course you've got china which is coming in and out of uh, the world economy, if you like. So it, the zero COVID policy, of course, meant that China was uh, not producing as much as you would have done otherwise, creating lots of problems across the world. And also for Asian countries that tend to export a lot to China, the demand wasn't there. Now, of course, with its relaxation of those uh, zero COVID measures, we've seen uh, quite a lot of uh, spread of the of the, the, the of COVID in large parts of China, which means that for a few months at any rate, again, production will be disrupted. So it's a bit of a mixed picture. Um, and the IMF is warning that uh, quite a large part of the world may suffer as a result. It does not mean that there will be recession everywhere. And the overall picture is one of a possible increase in GDP, but quite a small increase in GDP in the global economy. Mm. And the market fall in 2022 had an impact on sovereign wealth funds, but pensions as well. Where do we stand on that? Yes, I mean, we've had a combination of both uh, sort of bond uh, prices and also, of course, uh, stock markets reacting quite negatively during the year. So you have a substantial fall in this, whatever it is that is being held in terms of assets by both sovereign wealth funds, which of course tend to spread the risk, but also invest uh, in places where they think the returns could be reasonable, but also for the long term. I mean, that's basically what they do. Um, but also, of course, pension funds, which again have an interest in the long term. Now, those, of course, are not necessarily realizable losses in the sense that they are paper losses. Things could improve, and if they do, then they can be wiped out. But we've had this combination, which hasn't happened in a very long period of time, of both markets 
markets falls, um, uh, in other words, both in the bond market and in the stock market, which is very, very unusual. And that's what they're suffering from now. So depending, of course, on what we've just been discussing about growth uh, coming up in 2023 or perhaps not being very high, what's going to happen to yields in particular, which affect, of course, bond prices, interest rates coming up more generally, which are affecting stock markets. So overall, what we're seeing, therefore, is a lot of uncertainty again. And uh, the situation that we saw in 2022 may well be repeated again in 2023. Uh, and finally, I uh, couldn't help but notice uh, on the drive in this morning early in London, just so many stores in central London currently vacant uh, with stickers advertising them as being for let uh, and travelling just around the UK. You just see so many high streets that are really decimated. It's all just sort of lots of charity shops and, and cafes. There's not uh, it's pretty hard on the high streets. We've heard reports already that Christmas, which is the big shopping period here, hasn't been as lucrative for high street charities. As, as as was hoped do you think we're going to see yet more sort of trouble in the uk and and is it down specifically to sort of liz truss's sort of disastrous time in office in the late summer <laughs> that's an interesting question i mean what's been happening of course is that consumers have been squeezed as we've been uh, discussing because of high inflation and of course uh, household budgets being affected by increases in taxes which we're going to be feeling more over the next year uh, and we are a bit unusual in the UK in that we're having both a tightening in the monetary uh, side of uh, uh, of events. And we're also having a tightening on the fiscal side. So we've got both interest rates going up and taxes going up, even though uh, it's not the rates that have gone up necessarily, but they're stealth taxes. You know, personal allowances haven't gone up. So uh, people are going to be uh, feeling that a lot more uh, during the coming year. Uh, so the expectation is that retail sales uh, will grow, but actually not very much during the year. They may start increasing a little bit towards the end when inflation perhaps really does uh, start coming down mm-hmm. sort of significantly. That's where we are. But uh, of course, it varies a lot of where you look. You said you, you saw a number of shops being, being closed and that's absolutely true. Uh, what we hear is that uh, retail parks have done reasonably well. And of course, the cost cutting Um, uh, supermarkets and stores uh, are doing really rather well uh, because people are so much more conscious of of how much they're spending so Mm. so it's not all across the board it sort of varies very much on on which city you're looking at which high street you're looking at and also you know whether you're taking in retail parks as well which have done quite well well vicky thank you for joining us you're listening to the globalist on monocle 24 And finally, on today's show, I'm joined in the studio by film critic Karen Krasanovich to give us a rundown of the best films we should have on our radar in the year ahead. Um, Karen, thank you for joining us. Happy New Year. Happy New Year um, the first film on your list, I hadn't heard of it, Cocaine Bear. I watched the trailer <laughs> yesterday uh, and it looks pretty funny. It reminded me of like Snakes on a Plane. It looks like it's going to be a bit of a fun comedy. You got the tone right there. I mean, I, every, we, I've talked about this last year because it, it does have this crazy, crazy trailer. It's just great fun elizabeth banks uh comes back to just do a a, a trailer i'm getting a trailer sorry a feature about based on a true story about a a bear that found some cocaine in the woods and went crazy of course the that's not what happened in real life but that's what happens in the movie and it stars um tiktok 
TikTok uh, comic, Scott Sice, who's the angry retail guy who makes me laugh every time. So if, you, if you're on TikTok, look him up and see mm-hmm. what you think. Yeah, loosely based on a true story of this kind yeah. of drug uh, cartel that, that went wrong. It is as well one of the last performances of the late Ray Liotta. That is true. I'd, I'd forgotten about that. That's absolutely right. And he's going out with a bang, I have to say, with this one, because it's going to be quite a hoot. Now, uh, not on your notes, I have to say, I snuck in two vampire films. We've got Nick Nick Cage as Renfield, Dracula's assistant, who wonders what his life would be like without his dark master. And that comes out in April. And in August, The Last Voyage of the Demeter, I hope I'm saying that right, which is based on the last chapter in the Captain's Log from Bram Stoker's classic 1897 novel. So if you're into vampires, we've got two coming up. It's going to be a really packed year. Yeah. Um, and Oppenheimer. I saw the trailer for this uh, before Avatar The Way of Water, Christopher mm. Nolan's big epic on the invention of the nuclear bomb. Is this going to do well at the box office? We've been looking forward to this for ages. I mean, ever since it was it was mooted to come out. It looks amazing. The, the cast is incredible. But also interesting, it's coming out in July, which means it's going head-to-head with Barbie. <laughs> yeah. So you've got something for everybody. You've got something for... The, apparently, apparently, Barbie is really good. I've spoken to people who've seen it. Well, Greta Gerwig, you know, top yep. director. The, the trailer was quite funny. It was a spoof on Space Odyssey, uh, 2001. Uh, do you think audiences are going to actually go see this? Oh, What's gosh, it going to be yes, like? Absolutely. It's pink. It's really, <laughs> really pink. So you've got something serious in July, which is Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan. It's going to be profound and beautiful. And then you'll have something that's also not profound, but also beautiful in Barbie. Mm. <laughs> uh, and we're seeing a return of uh, Martin Scorsese working again with Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, and Brendan Fraser, of course, who's in hot contention for an Oscar. He's that's in right. this film, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, over over lockdown, I, li- I, I read the book. And uh, the book was was incredible and so if this is this is a story about uh, Native America and their resources and how they were basically um, system- sy- systemically abused but it's 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 an interesting story it's a surprising story and I'm, this is the one I've really been waiting for mm. for and almost two years <laughs> it's about the foundation of the FBI as well yes yes it, uh, that, that does come into play it's it's quite a complicated film I believe it's going to be quite long so okay. but interesting well this Scorsese um, and Napoleon. We're getting a Ridley Scott epic. Yes, we are. This has been in the works for quite some time. It was filmed uh, in Malta and also the UK. Uh, it looks amazing. I've seen some some bits and bobs from it. Uh, and we've got Joaquin Phoenix uh, playing Napoleon. So they gave him a bigger horse to make him shorter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa Kirby, of course, famous from uh, The Crown, playing Princess Margaret, yes. uh, is in that film. Um, and one which I think will probably do well in America, but I think the rest of the world might be scratching their heads a bit, <laughs> 80 for Brady. This is, you know, reuniting the comedy duo from uh, Grace and Frankie, so Lily Tomlin uh, and um, uh, Jane uh, Fonda, and it's also got Sally Field in it. What's this all about? Oh, this is the first feature by producer Kyle Marvin, and it's basically four best friends um, embark on a wild trip to see their hero Tom Brady play in the 2017 Super Bowl. It's very silly, but I think it's very fun. I think the energy is going to be great. It might not be the best film, but it's almost like the book club where it's it's, it's about women getting together and just being silly. Yeah, and who an age and, and demographic not enough movies are, are really made for. Um, and just finally, are we going to just see, again, sequel after sequel, franchise after franchise this year? Yes. <laughs> yes, we will. I mean, a lot have been delayed. There have been a lot, a lot been delayed. Don't forget, we're going to have Dune Part 2, which is basically going to be the finish of the of the film that 
that comes in two parts. Mm. And it's going to be a Timothy Chalamet Fest as well with Wonka, which is coming out. Uh, and, and that uh, is the prequel of the Wonka story by Paddington director Paul King. Okay. Well, um, Karen Krasanovich, thank you very much. Well, that is all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Laura Kramer and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, and our studio manager, Adam Heaton. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday London time, and The Globalist returns tomorrow. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>